1: Hello, this is Debbie Sorensen, and this is New Books in Psychology. Today, we're talking with Shelly Carson about her new book called Your Creative Brain. In this book, Shelly explores all different aspects of creativity, including different parts of the brain that are involved with creativity, different types of creativity, and ways that you can increase creativity in your own life. Hi, Shelly. Hi, Debbie. It's so great to talk to you. Great to talk to you too. Um, this is New Books in Psychology, and today we're talking with Dr. Shelley Carson about her book, Your Creative Brain Seven Steps to Maximize Imagination, Productivity, and Innovation in Your Life. And I've known Shelley for several years from when we were both in grad school together at Harvard, and I've read her book, and it's really fascinating and inspiring in terms of how to enhance creativity in your everyday life. Um, so, Shelley, I was just wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Oh, well, okay. Um, I would rather talk about my favorite topic, which is your creative brain, but um, just to give you a little bit of a background, as Debbie said, we were in graduate school at Harvard together back in the 90s, and um, I am a psychopathologist by training. I currently lecture, I'm a lecturer and do research in the Harvard Department of Psychology and I also teach in the Harvard Extension School. One of my courses, Creativity, Mad Men, Geniuses and Harvard Students, actually won an award for um one of the best courses on campus a few years ago, so I was very happy about that. Um, In addition, I'm working as a consultant for the Department of Defense on a project called afterdeployment.org. This is a completely online mental health help website for uh, our troops who are returning from Iraq and Afghanistan and their families. It's completely anonymous, and it's open to anyone to use. So I hope that your listeners will um, t- uh, go take check out afterdeployment.org. And in addition, I'm writing. I'm, I'm on my second book right now, which is a book on depression. And I also keep up a fairly active speaking schedule. And I love to play golf. Great. In fact, we're talking to you from
1: Florida. Have you had the chance to play some golf down there? Actually, yes. Um, we're,
2: uh, we're down here for a couple of months vacation. I took spring semester off from school So we're doing some traveling and that includes spending two months in beautiful Naples, Florida Which is where I'm talking from right now Fabulous. Well, thanks Shelley um, To get started Why don't you
1: tell us what really got you interested uh, in creativity research? What sparked your interest in this topic
2: well? I've always been interested in the lives of creative people, and one of the things that has always struck me is the number of highly creative visionaries who were struggling with inner demons. So as a psychopathologist, I began wondering uh, what really is the connection between creativity and psychopathology. That got me interested yield of creativity itself. And um, then things have just gone on from there. One of the other things that was a big influence in my life, I don't know, did you take um, Bill Milberg's neuroanatomy class, Debbie, when we were back at
1: Harvard? I did not. It never worked out with my schedule, but I heard great things about it.
2: Well, that was another really big influence on, on me as far as looking at creativity in the brain. And I'll never forget, Standing there, holding an actual i mean it sounds a little gross, but holding an actual human brain in my hand and realizing that all of the the things when we look around us, all of the things that humankind has wrought came from this one little three pound piece of uh organ from our bodies, all the things that um that we've been able to build that we've been able to achieve. Were once only an idea inside the human brain and that was so amazing to me that I began to really want to understand how the brain was able to manufacture all of these wonderful ideas.
1: That is amazing if you think about this little piece of tissue and how you know all the great works of art and everything that's come out of that that's pretty amazing. Well, actually, there's a really fascinating chapter in the book. And and kind of throughout the book, you talk about how our brains are really designed for creative thinking. Um, And it's not there's not just one creative center, but rather several different parts of the brain that are involved. Could you talk a little bit about how the brain kind of leads us to creativity?
2: Sure. And let me just talk a little bit about why I think it developed that way. If you think about it, um, creativity is our survival mechanism as a species. Our ancestors weren't strong enough to fight off predators or fast enough to run away from them. Really, the only way we've been able to survive as a species is through our own ingenuity. And that is how our, our brains have developed, is to give us this ability to be flexible and to solve problems in ways that um, other species can't do, and this is how we've sur- how we've been able to survive. So when you when you think about the brain, for instance, think about our ability to be able to plan for the future. One of the great things that our brain can do is imagine scenarios without our actually having to go through those scenarios. So, for instance, if I stand at the edge of the cliff and think about jumping over, rather than having to suffer the consequences of that, I can imagine what might happen to me. And that will keep me from having to make that survival mistake just to see what would happen. Um, We can imagine how different scenes will play out in our lives and make decisions based on that. So this is one of the ways that we plan. And creative people, all of us are creative, by the way, but highly creative people use those same brain mechanisms as the basis for imagination, to imagine that which has not yet happened. Do you think that this is something that's
1: kind of unique to humans or it seems like maybe even if humans aren't the only animals that that have this ability, we definitely have it to an extreme because sometimes I look at my dog and I think, I don't think he really plans the same way we do. (laughs) He lives in the moment.
2: But, you know, you mentioned it. I do remember that we had a dog one time that was actually able to push a bar stool over to the counter and try to get up on it to get food off the counter. So that was a little bit of imagination and planning on the dog's part. So I I do believe that it's um, I do believe that. Other animals may have this ability to a minimal degree, but it's certainly very well developed in the human brain. And it's allowed us to to go way beyond um, using what is around us and actually creating new things in our world. Are there some specific parts of the brain that you
1: think are most important in this ability?
2: Well, there's a number of things that in the book I call creative hotspots. And of course, the most important part has to be our prefrontal cortex and different parts of the prefrontal cortex. For instance, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is located in the front of your brain and to the side, is, is an analytical area of the brain that receives information from all over the brain and kind of digests. It and makes decisions based on it. So I consider that sort of to be the executive center of the brain. If we're thinking about our brain as a large corporation, then um, in the in the connections between the in the rear of the brain, sort of between the temporal, occipital, and parietal lobes, is a big connection center and association center in the brain that I sort of consider to be research and development. That's the research and development office. And that part of the brain is constantly comparing information that's coming in from the senses to patterns that are already stored in memory and knowledge centers in the brain and deciding whether there are matches there. So it's putting pieces of information together to see whether you can come up with a match for a particular set of criteria that you might that your prefrontal executive center might send back to be worked on. Lots of times we hear the, the phrase incubation. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking about that, or it's stewing on a back burner. That's almost literally the case in the brain. If you're working on a problem at a level below conscious awareness, probably a lot of that is going on in those associational centers. And then another important part of the brain is the reward centers of the brain, because the reward and fear are two of the things that motivate us in life. And especially for highly creative people, um, being rewarded, being attracted to novelty and receiving an internal reward is very important. That keeps you moving toward working with novel and original ideas. Yeah, and certainly
1: when you do get in that creative mode, it it definitely feels very exciting and rewarding.
2: Exactly. Cool. And then there's one more part of the brain that, that I should mention, and I call that the me center. It's sort of the center part of the brain, both the prefrontal cortex and it moves all the way toward the back. And this is an area of the brain that science has shown lights up when you're not thinking consciously, when you're not forcing conscious thought. So it's sort of the center of idle daydreaming. And this area is lit up a lot when you're doing creative work. Fascinating.
1: Thank you. Um, you write in the book about how creative creativity is important in a lot of different areas of life. And I think sometimes we kind of think, well, if you're not, you know, a musician or an artist, then you're not creative or creativity isn't that important. Um, could you give us some examples maybe of some other areas of life where creativity is important? Just why is creative creativity important in general for people?
2: Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting is we do think of creativity as being the venue of artists, scientists, writers, musicians, but Creativity is really important in business and especially today in this rapid change climate of the 21st century. Most, I should say all, of the prestigious business schools, at least in the United States, have now have a course on creativity. And in fact, headhunters who are um, looking for to fill executive positions for corporations say that creativity is the most sought-after trait by corporations for new CEOs. So creativity is extremely important in business today. Also, it's important in sports. In 2009, the International um, Sports Conference used creativity and innovation as its theme. We're even seeing that creativity is more important in the military today as new um, military is looking for people that have ideas of um, new ways to defend the country, new ways to, for instance, work that you and I are both engaged in, um, help our returnees from Iraq and Afghanistan. And then let's talk about in your personal life, creativity is extremely important in, in the field of parenting. How do you parent kids today that have earphones um, plugged in twenty four seven? They're texting. They're um, they've they've got their iPhones, their iPads. Um, they're not even looking at you. So it's a, it's a real challenge to parent children today. And in fact, when I was researching for my book, I found that there were something like four hundred thirty thousand websites devoted to creative parenting. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. So a lot of people are,
1: are interested in this.
2: Right, right. So it, creativity really um, impacts all aspects of your life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about sort of before we move into your model, if you could talk a little bit about the kind of overall model of how the creative process works, you know, different stages of creativity.
0: Well, the
2: original um, stages of creativity were first elucidated by Graham Wallace in his 1926 book, The Art of Thought. And he had used um, letters and uh, writings of many, many creative luminaries from the past and kind of sorted through those to try to find out how they described their creative process. And he came up with four stages of the creative process. The first one is preparation. And before I describe these, I would also like to say, by the way, that highly creative people today that I've interviewed, and I've interviewed hundreds of people who are successful in the creative field, um, they still say that this is their process. These stages seem to be universal in the creative process throughout the centuries. So the first stage is called preparation. And in the preparation stage, basically you're gathering knowledge. Um, You're getting a broad base of general knowledge as well as specific knowledge for the domain or area of creative work in which you're planning to do your, your work. So for instance, if you're a painter, you're learning everything you can about painting, the history of painting, how to put Um, the paint onto the canvas, how to mix the paint, how to use the brushes. If you're a musician, you're learning to play an instrument, you're learning uh, musical notation. So regardless of what area of creativity you're working in, you are preparing yourself both in general, with a general base of knowledge, and in a specific area that you will be working in. Um, Then you have to do what's called creative problem finding, and this involves finding an area in your field that it maybe is dissatisfying in some way, maybe something that could be done better, or something that could be done differently, or a whole new way of doing something, and that's your creative problem. Or perhaps you have a specific piece of creative work that you're you're trying to do. So, for instance, um, with Tchaikovsky, maybe. Bazaar has commissioned you to write a um, to write a symphony about a war victory, and so you start thinking about this and and considering it. All of this is part of the preparation process. The next stage of the process that Wallace identified is the incubation process. So you've worked and you've thought about what it is you want to do, and you can't quite come up with um, the right approach. So you put it again on the back burner of your brain and you move on to something else. You distract yourself or you move on to a different project. And then the third aspect or the third stage of creativity is called illumination or insight. And this is when the idea pops into conscious awareness like, aha, eureka, I have the idea. And once you have that idea, then you have to Elaborate. Oh, first of all, you have to evaluate it, determine whether it actually is a good idea. And finally, if you decide it is a good idea, then you elaborate on it. You flesh it out. Um, you make it ready for public consumption, so to speak. You finish the novel. You flesh out the characters. Um, you add all of the different instrumentation to the symphony. Um, and that's the process.
1: Right. Um, And I was actually really intrigued by the, you mentioned these interviews you've been doing with highly creative people. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe some of the interesting things that you heard from people?
2: Sure. So one of the questions that I do ask people in creative fields is, tell me what your creative process is. How do you create this? How do you write this song or how do you get your ideas for your novels? And one of the more interesting interviews that I did was with a songwriter who shall remain anonymous because it was part of a study that I did where I promised anonymity. But anyway, I I know that everybody would recognize her songs. And I said, how do you how do you actually go through this process? And she said, well, to begin with, I don't write the songs. The angels write the songs. And I was like, oh, mm hmm. And she said, yes, on certain good days, I'm able to put my antenna up in the air and pull the angel's songs down into my head. But only on certain, usually it happens at night, and it's only on certain nights. And the angels let me, um, the song comes to me fully written, and the angels let me change the name, if there's a name in the um song they let me change that they let me change the arrangement but I can't change any other words in the lyrics and I can't change the melody and as soon as I get the song I quickly write it down and get it off to my agent so that somebody else doesn't pull the same song out of the air oh wow I know almost (laughs) basically what is to me is a description of the insight or the illumination stage of the creative process What happens is these ideas come to you fully formed and you don't have any, you don't have conscious knowledge of having developed them. So it almost feels like they're inserted into your brain. And I'll bet a lot of your listeners have had this um, effect occur to them before all of a sudden you come up with an idea or you remember something and you don't remember doing the mental work. To put it together, so it does almost feel like thought insertion,
1: almost as if you're you're no part of it. It just sort of came to you,
2: right? And in without fact, any work, yes. And in fact, so many different creative luminaries have described this. Robert Schumann, for instance, the composer, um, believed that his symphonies were channeled to him from Beethoven, by Beethoven and Mendelssohn from their tombs. So, and likewise, so that, William Blake said that. Um, oh, these ideas come to me from these little demons, these fairy type people that are constantly nudging me and saying, "Do this, do that." So, um, uh, sounds magical. It does, it, uh, I and I think it actually feels magical when it's happening.
1: Yeah, and with this, so this would be more of the spontaneous pathway. You mentioned that there's the spontaneous
2: pathway and the deliberate pathway. Exactly. Exactly. So um, when I talk about creativity, and I talk about this in the book, too, there's basically two different pathways to get to creative solutions to whatever problem you're having. And one is the deliberate pathway. And um, that is a pathway where you consciously and continually think about your problem and arrive at creative solutions through, well, basically trial and error. So. Thomas Edison is sort of the poster child for um, this type of thinking. Um, he talks about creativity as being our, um, imagination, as creativity as being 99% perspiration and one percent inspiration, and that's because when he worked, for instance, on trying to improve the electric light bulb and figuring out a way. Um, that you could use a filament. What can you use for a filament for a light bulb? He said, now now I know 10,000 different ways not to do it. That won't work. And he basically used trial and error. I'll try this substance, I'll try that substance, I'll try this substance, I'll try that substance. And when he finally came up with the right substance, which was tungsten, It seems like a huge creative breakthrough to the rest of the world, but it was basically done with this conscious um, try something, reject it, try something, reject it, try something, reject it. And that is the deliberate pathway to creativity. The spontaneous pathway is more like the illumination process or the insight process that we've been talking about. You basically think about the parameters or the criteria of what you want to do, um, and then forget about it for a while and go on and do something else, and the solution magically pops into your brain at some point. And that's called the spontaneous pathway. And I think what's really interesting is neuroscientists today have been looking at what actually occurs when people are having these insight experiences. And this is a lot of what I use in my um, model for creativity and talking about different brain sets, um, which are actually brain activation states that will promote different stages of the creative process.
1: Maybe we could move a little into talking about your model. Um, one thing that I learned from your book that I thought was really interesting is that there's just so many different forms of creativity and, you know, these brain sets that you talk about. Um, so could you give us maybe an overview of your model and then talk a little bit about some of the different aspects
2: of your model? Okay, sure. So the brain, the create brain set model uh came about because as i had mentioned earlier i was very interested in how the brain was processing the creative uh creative thought and there's a great deal now of neuroscience um, including some that we're doing at harvard and and um other work that's being done basically all over the world, Uh, I would say in about the year 2000, neuroscientists became interested in the creative process and have been examining creativity both using uh, neuroimaging such as MRI and also EEGs, which are, of course, the little electrodes that you put on people's heads and and read um, their brainwave patterns. So, these two different aspects of uh, neuroscience um there's there's a lot of published material about that, again, both from our labs at Harvard and around the world. and some of it's very confusing and some of it's conflictual and um the creates brain set model was my attempt to take all of this information and make sense of it, make a comprehensive model out of it. And one of the things that I realized is that different, we're getting different results um, from creativity testing and neuroimaging because um, researchers are actually looking at different aspects of the creative process. So of course, if you have different brain activations, say are different aspects of the process, you're going to come up with conflicting information. I talk about brain sets again these are brain activation patterns and I use the word brain set because it's sort of the biological equivalent of a mindset you know when you change your mindset you look at the world differently but when you change your brain activation pattern you actually look you actually think differently so your perception is different your memory recall is different Um, your problem solving techniques are different depending upon which parts of your brain are active and if you want a good example of that then one brain set or brain activation pattern that i might point out is the pattern of being afraid or fear and just think about how the way you look at the world changes if you're fearful for instance If you're not fearful, you could be walking down a moonlit path in the woods at night and you might be aware of bird song and maybe a babbling brook in the distance and the moonlight shining through the leaves. But then all of a sudden, let's say you hear footsteps behind you and you're there alone. All of a sudden, everything about your perception changes. You're no longer hearing bird song and babbling brooks. Um, you're listening for those, foots, for those noises. You're listening for somebody who might be a threat to you, behind you. And you're examining your environment for safety. Where, where can I go? Where can I hide? Rather than looking at the um, beautiful moonlight through the trees. So that's one way that the fear brain activation pattern changes all of these things about thought. So different brain activation patterns lead to different ways of looking at the world.
0: Where were we? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so that's that's a great overview. And, um, you know, I was just thinking about the different brain sets when if you think about maybe doing a, a crossword puzzle or something like that and versus, you know, painting or something, it, it just feels so different.
2: Right, exactly. So you're just
1: in this completely different mode.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah. so so um, when I was trying to put all the neuroscience together, I actually came up with seven different brain sets or brain activation patterns that seem to be associated with the creative process. And again, these, you feel totally different. You look at the world in totally different ways when you're in each of these different brain sets. Do you want me to run through them very quickly? Yeah, if you don't mind, that would be great. Okay. So um, the word CREATE, um, each letter in that stands for a different brain activation pattern or brain set. And I will go through them uh, letter by letter, CREATE, but This isn't the order necessarily that you would go through these brain activation patterns if you were involved in the creative process. So C stands for the CONNECT brain set, and this is a brain set in which you're able to generate multiple solutions to a single problem. Brainstorming. For instance, if you're brainstorming, you would be in the connect pattern. So when you're here in the connect brain set, you're able to see connections between very, very remote or distant pieces of information. And by the way, before we go through this, maybe one of the things I should do is talk about the definition of creativity. Because we all kind of know it when we see it, but um, in order to study something scientifically, you actually have to have. definition and you have to have a way of measuring it so I will I will give you the official definition of creativity that researchers use and then I'll give you my own definition in order to be creative in order for an idea or a product to be creative according to creativity researchers it has to have two qualities first of all it has to be either novel or original so that's obvious, right? We When we think of things as being creative, we think of them as being novel or original. And the second thing is it has to be both, well, useful or adaptive in some way. That is, it has to serve some sort of useful or adaptive purpose to at least some segment of the population. And that's the part of the definition that often people don't really think about. When you think about art, you don't think of it necessarily as being useful. But in fact, art is very useful. It is um, one of the ways that we communicate with each other across time, across centuries, across continents, and across ideologies. So art does have utility. Um, I'll give you some ideas of things, just some examples of things that are creative, but I mean, that are novel, but aren't necessarily useful. And one of these would be um, maybe the scribblings of a um, two-year-old that's just learning how to hold a crayon. So sometimes they'll scribble on a piece of paper. Sometimes they'll scribble on your wall. You'll find this out soon, Debbie. (laughs) Um, um, But the scribblings are not necessarily they are novel and original because they've never been done before, but they're not necessarily useful except perhaps to the mother who wants to frame it and put it on the refrigerator.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: another example might be the pattern of um, the pattern of skid marks that are made by um, kids that are leaving rubber on the road. That pattern is novel and original, but it's not necessarily. Uh, useful or adaptive in any way. Okay, so back to um, the definition of creativity. Here's my own personal definition. Creativity for, um, is taking bits of information that are stored in your own unique repository of memories, knowledge, and skills, and combining and recombining those bits of information in novel and original ways to come up with a useful or adaptive product or idea. So again I like that again it begins in the head with bits of information that we can combine and recombine in novel ways that serve a purpose. Okay so going back to the the brain set model um, in the connect brain set that I mentioned before, when you're in this brain activation pattern, you see connections between these things. And you are able to come up with multiple solutions. Um, sometimes this is called divergent thinking to problems or brainstorm. That's the, that's the brain set you're in when you're doing your most effective brainstorming. The R in CREATE stands for reason and when you're in this brain activation pattern you're solving problems logically and sequentially um, this is the one of the um, brain sets that's used for the deliberate pathway um, you improve and you rework and you elaborate um, going through trial and error and you synthesize you um, using conscious thinking CRE for in the CREATES, an E stands for ENVISION. When you're in the ENVISION brain set, you're thinking visually, you're using your imagination, and you're seeing patterns emerge. So this is a very different brain activation pattern, including a lot of right brain activation. A stands for ABSORB. When you're in the ABSORB state, you're in sort of a receptive, non-judgmental state your mind is open to new experiences and new ideas without judging them so this is this is a brain state where I find that creative people tend to spend a lot of time they're just soaking it all in they're taking in information from their environment information that may pop up in their own head um, and just observing it non-judgmentally. If if your listeners do mindfulness meditations, very often mindfulness meditations are a great way to get into the absorbed brain state. The transformed brain state is a state in which um, you are feeling negative, perhaps mildly depressed, mildly anxious, and you use that Negative energy and transform it into creative work so you can actually use a negative state of mind and use that energy um, to to do creative work and we hear um, or we see in the writings of many creative people that they were able to use depressive states or anxious states. Um, and use that actual state of mind to come up with um, new expressive ideas. The evaluate brain set is a state in which you are very judgmental. You are able to judge the value of your ideas and concepts and products and your own and others' behavior. So there's certain parts of the brain that are associated with um, what I call the judgment center. Of the brain and it includes uh, parts of the prefrontal cortex when they're activated um, then you are are in a judgmental state of mind and then finally there's a stream brain set and when you're in this streaming brain set thoughts and actions are flowing very steadily you're in the zone as athletes like to say or as um, um the creativity researchers suggested. you're in a state of flow So those are the seven brain sets. Great. Well, thanks for
1: the overview. And in the book, you kind of you go through each brain set and and elaborate a lot on what it is and and ways to tap into it. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk about, I don't know, one or two of your favorite or I guess most interesting um, of the brain sets and just
2: maybe talk a little bit more about about what what's involved. Sure. Well. So One of the first things that I do in the book is present a quiz, and the quiz is based on um, it's it's kind of a composite of a number of different um, neuropsych tests and um, and um, self-report tests that will actually tell you what your preferred brain set is. Everybody sort of has what I call a mental comfort zone, and that's the place where cognition is most comfortable to you and different people um, prefer different brain sets so we probably all know people whose preferred brain set is the evaluate brain set and as soon as a piece of information is presented to them they immediately judge it or evaluate it or they are constantly judging other people's and their own behavior Um, so this would um, those people would um, prefer the evaluate brain set So by taking this quiz, you can kind of find out which is which is your preferred brain state.
1: I took the quiz and I just have to say for people who are interested in this, it's really fun and interesting to see, um, you know, your own unique pattern of creativity.
2: So which was your preferred, Debbie? I was
1: I I was in the reason and absorb. Oh, no, 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 sorry.
2: Reason and connect were my two. Reason and connect. And I think they were tied. Yeah. Okay, so that 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 kind of indicates that you have a very um, balanced um, pattern. One of the other things that's really important and that I emphasize in the book is the ability. Once you find out your mental comfort zone, um, the goal is to try to be able to experience these other brain sets, and then also to be able to flexibly move among them. So this cognitive flexibility, flexibly being able to change brain states is one of the hallmarks of the truly creative mind. So I also present a lot of exercises at the end of the book to help people move between the different brain activation patterns and having a tie between connect and reason suggests that you're probably pretty able to move between those two ways of thinking. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, and
1: you know what I thought was so interesting, um, even, you know, so let's take evaluate, you know, the the more judged judgmental, critical kind of, you know, evaluative mm-hmm. process um, that might not seem that relevant to creativity. But in fact, it's really important. You mentioned that. Could you talk a little bit about hoarding disorder and how that's? Oh, do you remember right, in the book? Right,
2: right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So one of the things that happens with hoarders and by the way, not that I'm a hoarder, but I scored like zero on the evaluate um scale and evaluating is really really tough for me like I would be a horrible movie critic because I every movie I see I like I get into it absorb is my um, is my brain set that I spend most of my time in and I can't evaluate anything to save my life so (laughs) so I always need editors and evaluators around me because I don't seem to be very good at doing it myself even though I'm doing all the exercises that I put in the book but anyway so everybody has these states that are uncomfortable to them right mm-hmm. and hoarders probably have the, mo- the worst time with evaluating because they're constantly instead of instead of collecting bits of information that, that I suggested is really necessary for creativity they are collecting bits of anything And um, they're saving them in their own unique repository, only instead of being a mental repository, it's um, their garage and their shed and and their bedroom and every place else. And they cannot let go of any of it. So what I've done in the book is um, I've included a couple of exercises that have um, been helpful with hoarders. Um, to help people kind of learn how to let um, how to make judgments about what to let go of because one of the problems that I've noticed in my own life and other people have reported to me as well is if you come up with a creative idea and it comes to you through the um, spontaneous pathway that is you have a moment of insight an aha experience those ideas not only seem to come to you fully formed, but with this great conviction that they are the answer. This is it. And um, so you have to loosen your, your conviction a little bit so that you can judge the idea appropriately and determine whether it really is a good idea. And many times people will go way off on a wrong course or an inappropriate course or an unhelpful course. Uh, because they weren't able to evaluate an idea that came to them through insight and see it, see that it really wasn't going to work out. So anyway, going back to the evaluate, um, I uh, I included several exercises in the book that have been used with hoarders to help them be able to throw away certain ideas or to rank um, ideas or objects so that they could get, eventually get rid of some of them. And that's what those of us who aren't very good at evaluating need to do.
1: Yeah, I found the the exercises that you, you wrote about in the book were really fun and interesting and inspiring. And I've tried a few, but I can't wait to try more. Oh, um, I really recommend well, people who want to get those creative juices flowing that
2: you take a look at, at Shelley's book. Yeah, and don't forget to give yourself the reward of the tokens. Um, every time you do the exercise. One of the things that I've built into the book, and that I think is really important, um, and both both Debbie and I are trained in cognitive behavioral techniques. So one of the big techniques in um, getting people to change, make life changes, is um, incentives or rewards. And um, one of these ideas is called a token economy. And in this type of system, what you do is you give yourself a tiny reward. It could be a jelly bean. It could be one of those sticky stars that you give the kids when they clean their room or brush their teeth. And you you collect those. You get one or two every time you do an exercise, especially one that's outside of your mental comfort zone. And as soon as you have a number of these collected, um, then you can turn them in for what I call a small pleasure. And it's the beginning of this program, um, when you read the book, you make a list of small pleasures. These are things that you really enjoy but that you don't treat yourself to ordinarily. Perhaps getting a, uh, a pedicure or a massage or a new golf club or a new um, um, downloading a, a new album or something like that. and Or going out to dinner at a favorite restaurant. And then as soon as you collect enough of enough tokens, these small tokens, then you get to turn it in for a, a small reward, one of your small pleasures. And the what's going on behind this is you are giving yourself a reward every time you do one of the exercises in the book. And this increases when you're rewarded for doing something. It increases the probability that you will do that particular behavior in the future. So what we want to do is increase the probability that we will get into these different brain sets. And the more we do it, the more easily we'll be able to get into them. That's a great idea.
1: I think that would be especially helpful if you're getting kind of stuck creative-wise and mm-hmm. need some incentive to to keep creating. Exactly. Could you talk a little bit about the one of the th- topics that got you interested initially in creativity and and you talk about this in the section on the the transform brain set where you're using that negative emotional state to be creative. Could you talk a little bit about the connection between, uh, I guess,
2: mental illness and creativity? That really was one of the things that got me involved in the field of creativity. And, um, I'm, I'm very interested there's a, there's a huge debate right now in uh, in the psychology world about whether creativity is associated with mental illness or not. And there's there's some evidence um, that highly creative people are, are at greater risk for certain types of mental disorders, in particular mood disorders such as depression and bipolar disorder, um, schizophrenic, Schizophrenia spectrum disorders, such as um, what's called schizotypal personality, and also alcohol and drug abuse. So, there's, as I say, there there um, are a number of anecdotal reports from highly creative people, and there's also um, empirical evidence to this. But on the other hand, it does seem that Being creative is sort of the peak of mental health. For instance, if you um, are familiar with the humanist tradition, people like Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, considered creativity to be the epitome or the height of self-actualization. So now we're torn between these two different sides. Creativity is an example of extreme positive mental health or creativity is associated with mental illness. Which is it? And that's actually the area where I've done the most research in my career. And um, in, in March of last year, I had an article um, in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry where I presented what's called the shared vulnerability model. And my suggestion um, For which I I think there's a great deal of evidence is this, that highly creative people who are naturally highly creative, and I want to say we're all creative, right? Everybody has the ability to be very, very creative. One of the differences, I believe, genetically, between the highly creative people and uh, people who consider themselves to be less creative is that highly creative people are have easier access into these brain states that I feel are associated with creativity, especially with the spontaneous um, pathway. So anyway, um, my suggestion is that there are shared genetic propensities between certain mental types of mental illness and creative genius. And a person is a creative genius or... Um, a psychotic based on the presence or absence of additional um, factors, which we might call protective factors, that go along with it. So some of the things that are, um, I think, shared genetic propensities between, for instance, people who have a tendency to drink or um, use drugs, abuse them, and creative people is the... um, Attraction to novelty. Highly creative people are extremely attracted to novelty. They are novelty-seeking. And we've, um, scientists have found that the brain mechanisms that are associated in novelty-seeking are also associated with addiction. So that's one of the... Shared vulnerabilities, and that certainly doesn't mean that every person who is highly creative is going to become an alcoholic or a drug addict, and it certainly doesn't mean that if you try to enhance your creativity, that you are going to be at greater risk for alcohol or um, or or drug abuse it because again, it depends on the presence or absence of other other um, genetic factors. So, so like on. a lot of things in psychology, it sounds
1: like it's pretty complicated. Yes,
2: I'm sorry. That probably was a pretty awful description of it. Oh, no,
1: that was great. I think it's, it's you know, sometimes we, we hear about these, you know, Sylvia Plath types who are creative and, and, you know, suicidally depressed. But we don't sometimes think about that other side, the, the you know, well-being that goes along with creativity as well and how you know, any given individual. It's a really complicated how.
2: Right. And made- in, in fact, I think and Sylvia Plath is a great illustration of it because she wrote to a friend of hers, and I, I this isn't an, an exact quote, but she said that she would be dead if it weren't for her writing. Of course, she eventually did kill herself, but what we're seeing is that her her ability to write um her poetry actually probably kept her alive. It was a protective factor for her. So she was able to use that. She was able to, at least to a certain extent, transform that negative depressive energy into um, creative work. And it, Have you? Oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say that we see that over and over again with um, people with these. Um, vulnerabilities, with these mental illness vulnerabilities. Graham Greene, for instance, wrote, um, again, that's not an exact quote, but I don't know how people who don't compose, write, or paint um, can deal with the panic and the um, and the sheer terror of the human experience. So it was clear, clearly he was using his creative abilities um, as a protective factor against um Depression.
1: I was just thinking of Joan Didion's book, *The Year of Magical Thinking*. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that, oh, but I she guess. writes. She writes about the year after her husband's death, and she uses the writing, to kind of help with the grief process.
2: Which yeah. is which is a perfect example of this. And I would also recommend to um, any of your listeners that you, if you are feeling depressed or down. Um, that you maybe try to use use that energy, channel it. Take out, get some colored markers and, and start drawing or some paints and just try to paint your mood onto a canvas or paint your mood onto a piece of paper with words. Or if you play an instrument, use it to express your feelings certainly the whole um the whole genre of the blues was based on um people transforming negative depressive energy into into music
1: great that's a great idea Um, I was wondering, you mentioned brainstorming a couple of times as part of the connect brain set where you're generating multiple ideas. And actually, you mentioned in your book, and I don't know if you came across, there was recently a, a New Yorker article just within the last few weeks. Did you happen to see that, Shelley? And what was it on? It was on brainstorming and how, you know, we all kind of we've heard about brainstorming for so long it just seems so obvious that that's a great way to get with a group and generate ideas but that it's not really actually the most effective way to to generate ideas could you
2: talk a little bit about that oh certainly so there's actually um a body of research that's looked at this brainstorming has been around um since the 1940s and um The idea is that if you get a group of, that multiple heads are better than one at solving problems. And so, of course, uh, I'm sure most of your, uh, most of your listeners know that brainstorming is basically the idea is you get a group of people together, you present them a problem, and they're supposed to start generating uh, multiple solutions as quickly as they can, non-judgmentally in the group. And then you can build on each other's ideas and everything. Well, Um, this is a great idea in theory, but what has happened um, in in practicality is that people actually are less able to generate creative ideas when they're in a group. And this is usually because of social pressures of various sorts. So if you're on a team at work, um, one of the things that happens is everybody is worried about what everybody else will think. Oh, Well, that was a stupid idea. So even though it's supposed to be a non-judgmental generation of ideas, people are constantly worried that other people are judging their ideas. And as a consequence, this really shuts down the connect brain set um, and gets people into a more um, social comparison type of um, mindset or brain set. So what... Um, more recent research has shown is the best way to brainstorm is to give people ideas, get, throw out an idea, and then have people brainstorm individually, not in a group, but individually. And then once they have completed the individual brainstorming, they present their solutions anonymously to the group. So that would mean maybe you write all your solutions down on a three-by-five card. They're all given um in in no particular order to a a facilitator. And then that facilitator will read out each idea and people can build on that um, non-judgmentally again. And then eventually you can start eliminating ideas and judging them. But people in groups tend not to um, be able to generate as many solutions and as many high quality solutions as they can alone. So I I'm, now I remember that I didn't read the New Yorker article, but I think I was actually one of the um, one of the reviewers on the article that the New York article was written about.
1: Oh yeah. Well, it's pretty. It's interesting because it just goes against our common, you know, common sense or common assumption that we all make as brainstorming. is just that's just what people
2: right, have been exactly. doing for so long. Exactly. So that's, as, that's just oh, a, to repeat one more time. Um, you need solitude, really, to generate your best ideas. And one of the things I worry about with people today is solitude is sort of a thing of the past. Everybody's so busy all the time, and you're constantly um, tweeting and looking at your emails and, and um, um, calling or voicemails that people don't have time just to reflect. Uh, and that's what you need to get into this absorb brain set or and into the connect brain set where you can start generating ideas. So well, uh,
1: speaking of which, as we're kind of wrapping up here, could you maybe just give one or two quick tips, something people could do who are listening to get started with maybe fostering creativity in their lives? Certainly.
2: Um I'll be glad to talk about to talk about some tips. Well, the first thing that I think is really important is continue to gather knowledge Never quit learning. Read widely on a variety of topics and try to expand your areas of interest. So again, remember that creativity is combining and recombining bits of information that are stored in your unique repository of your brain. So the more bits of information you have, the better combinations you're going to be able to come up with and the more original combinations. So never quit learning. Um, and I tell my students to become an information sponge. Just keep, it doesn't matter if it, you know, the more widely interested you are in things, the more stuff you're going to have to to put together. The second thing is try to turn down the sensor in your brain. Try to turn off that evaluate brain set um, for long periods of time. Um, rather than trying to judge the value of your ideas, this will allow them simply to come forward into conscious awareness and play out in your mind. If you hear your things th- yourself say- saying things like, that's stupid or that would never work, then you just need to give that judgment center in your brain a coffee break. This will allow more ideas, yeah, and even some not so good ideas, to feed forward into conscious awareness. So turn down the sensor.
0: Um,
2: another thing I suggest to people is carry a notepad or a digital recorder because when ideas pop into your mind, you think, oh, that's such a great idea, I'll never forget it. The next minute it'll be gone. One of the things that happens when you're in um, the absorb brain state, which is the state that neuroscience has now showing you really need to be in to have, have that um, insight experience, um, one of the things that happens is you're also turning down the volume on the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is the executive center, and that's also tied to working memory. So consequently, what happens is these ideas will come to you um, in a fleeting second, and they will leave in a fleeting second if you don't get them recorded. Spend time with creative people. The more creative people you're with, creativity does breed creativity in spite of the fact that um, brainstorming doesn't always work. And by the way, can I go back to that brainstorming? I was just thinking about Monty Python. You know the British group? Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that they didn't sit around and do some brainstorming together. But they were probably disinhibited by certain herbs. (laughs) I gotcha. Okay. Um, so spending time with creative people is important. And another thing that I think is really, really helpful for creativity, spend some, some time unplugged from your electronics and take a walk in nature. When you're in beautiful surroundings, it naturally defocuses your attention because you are looking around, because you're trying to take in everything that's around you. And the defocus, attentional state is a state in which you are most likely to have creative ideas so those are are a few just a few ideas that's
1: great that's i'm ready to go get started (laughs) with some creativity now um well thank you so much shelly we've taken up a lot of your time today um what are you working on
2: now So um, I've got another book in the works right now. I have a co-author and we're doing a book on depression and um, also doing um, some speaking around the world. I'll be going to Spain next month and to India the month following and um, teaching and working on a new project of creativity, which I call CLOUT. C L O W T, which is the Cultural Legacy of Wisdom Transmission. Basically, what I'm hoping is that people will think about what their one message would be to the world. they could just give one message to the world, what would it be? And once you've thought of what your message would be, is there some way you can embed it in a creative medium like painting or a novel or poetry or music? in order to share it with the world.
1: Well, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to see it. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the New Books and Psychology Network today. I really enjoyed talking with you.
2: It was a pleasure to talk to you, Debbie, and to catch up with you. You too. Thanks,
1: Shelley. Bye-bye. Bye. We've been talking with Shelley Carson about her new book, Your Creative Brain, Seven Steps to Maximize Imagination, Productivity, and Innovation in Your Life. I'm Debbie Sorensen, co-host of New Books in Psychology. Thank you for listening.